0: Good morning. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 10. If you're following the bulletin, don't follow it for right now because I apparently forgot to change that. So, my bad, my bad. Matthew 10 is where we're going to be today. Verses 26 through 39. We're going to be talking about counting the cost today. Counting the cost. And before I get going with that, If you would pray with me Heavenly Father, Lord As we gather here today, help us Help us to quiet our hearts, our souls And listen Listen as you would show us, teach us, and guide us Into your truths Help us to wait patiently not in fear, not in anxiety, not distracted by the other things that are going on, not only in our life, but maybe on our mind today. Looking forward to the upcoming week. Help us. Help us just to be here with one another and be here with you. To be present here. And Father God, we pray, as your servants have said of old, here we are, God. God. Here we are. Your servants are listening. Holy Spirit, show us, teach us, guide us in the Word. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. Matthew, chapter 10, verse 26 through 39. That's where we're at today. Counting the cost. And you'll see there, some of the quotes in the bulletin uh, have this idea of discipleship, this idea of going all through, of, of not stopping short, no half measures. That's what we're talking about today. Here in this section, we got Jesus getting ready to send out the 12 apostles. He's got to send them out, and basically he's given them not only what they're supposed to say, what they're supposed to be doing, but also a word of warning, of caution. Basically, the, the gist of what happens before this is, The world's a very dark and evil spot. People are going to come after you. They're not going to like what you have to say. My good news isn't good news for people in power and people who lord it over others. It's not good news for them. God's kingdom isn't like that. God's kingdom is about unwinding those things. It's about submitting everything to Christ. It's about even though we're weak, even though we're in the middle of whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever is going on in our lives, that Christ is lord over that. The world is being renewed slowly through Christ. So here we pick up when we talk about fear in verse 26. And he's emphasizing this idea of pushing through, of there's going to be this desire, this want to bow down to the world, to the society, what they would have you say. To not want to say truth, to not want to redeem and to want to empower the world, but to capitulate to it. Just be a part of it. It's easier that way. So here in the midst of this, Jesus is talking about fear and what we should be doing. And before I get reading that, uh, we lived in Oklahoma for a while. Uh, You've heard me talk about that. One of the things that I got used to in a town like that was I never had delivery before. We lived out in the country when we were kids. I never The the idea that you could call somebody and they would bring you food fascinated me. It it was kind of like that. My mom did that, but it it wasn't the food I wanted always. It was just whatever she wanted to make. But this idea, you could call people up and they would drop pizzas off at your house, that just fascinated me. That was one of the things I loved. One of the things I absolutely loved. And we lived in Oski for a while and you could go do that, but we were already coming back from Walmart or whatever and we used to just pick it up anyways. But Oklahoma, it's like... You have to drive about 20 minutes to get to it. And for whatever reason in my head, I thought, ah, i just have them deliver it. That's kind of the stuff I got used to, and I kind of liked it. And another thing was, I never saw any of these until we lived in Bartlesville. Before then, I just thought they existed in shows and on movies. It was an ice cream truck. I had no idea ice cream trucks actually existed anymore. I thought that went the way of the milkman. So I just, for whatever reason, the first summer we were there, we lived in an apartment. And in the middle of nowhere, we were just chilling out. It was maybe 85, so I had the windows open, which now I think about that, and I'm like, it's 85, but in Oklahoma it got a lot warmer. 85 wasn't too bad in the morning. I heard this weird music, and it sounded kind of sickly, but it sounded very reminiscent of what you would hear on a TV show when an ice cream truck's in town. And so I storm out of the apartment. I run down my stairs. We lived on a second floor deal, and we had outside steps that go down. I storm down there, and I start running around our apartment complex trying to find the sound because I'm like, it's an ice cream truck. I know it is. I finally found this thing, and there were kids all around it, and all of the imagination I had in my head about all the things. That, I had a fistful of cash. I was ready, man. It went right out the window when I saw this thing. It was a janky gray van. And that word janky is an Oklahoma term, which means pitiful, homely looking thing. I looked at it and I'm like, it's a creeper van. It's not an ice cream truck. It's a creeper van. And it had one little magnetic thing on the side that said ice cream. And it was playing this horrible music. It didn't even sound good. It just, well, I could tell it was an ice cream truck, but that was about it. I just walked away because I'm like, I don't even, I don't want ice cream now. I don't, that's just creeping me out. And so I went back home and I told Teresa all about it. And she goes, really? It looked like that? I'm like, yeah, it look, it just looked horrible. It just look horrible. She goes, oh, it's really, and you didn't tell the kids maybe to get away I'm like, I don't know. They all knew what they were doing. They got in the line. I don't know. Maybe it's normal. Two days later, I hear the same sound except way louder. And it was playing way, way, way more upbeat. I go storming out my door again because I'm like, oh, maybe stuff's strange. Completely different ice cream truck. White truck, real bright, had all those good humor signs all over the thing. And it just looked colorful. I had a big old popsicle on top of the roof and everything. I was like, that's an ice cream truck. That looks like an ice cream truck. And I go up there. I almost bought something. Then I figured out that you have to pay five bucks for a popsicle. And I could go to Walmart and get like 12 popsicles for five bucks. So my hopes were dashed again because I'm cheap. And I'm not going to do that, and I just talk myself out of it. But the one thing I kept coming back to is, how does a guy in the really weird, old, creepy van do business when there's this guy with this really nice van that's just it looks like an ice cream truck, just picturesque like off of a movie or a show? How does he do that? And all I thought is you just wanted to be an ice cream man so bad that you bought a really creepy van off somebody and you slapped a sticker on it and then you started to just sell popsicles out the side of it. It was kind of like he was half in and half out. Like if that didn't work out, he could go nab dogs or something. I don't know. I don't know what people do other than that. But that's, that's kind of what I thought. It was like a half in, half out thing. Like it was what he could do without really committing to it. I'm like, I just couldn't buy ice cream from a guy like that. Not that I'm picky about it, but uh, it was weird. Here, in the midst of this, Jesus has these kind of words about what it is to commit to him. And one of his big critiques is, you can't be half in half out. you got to be all in, all in all the time. And he starts to talk about it, and he says there's kind of a, a cost to this. He said this in other spots where there's a cost to what we do. Here, he starts to illustrate the cause. So if you would, verse 26. So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Counting the cost. The first cost we see is the cost of truth. Here, verse 26, he talks about this. So have no fear for them, or sorry, of them. For nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear, rather, him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The first cost of truth, here established, is the abandonment of fear. Christ is asking us to abandon fear. All before this, he talks about what things are going to happen to you. And if you read back some of that, people are going to drag you in front of governors, registrars, kings, courts to give an account and you're going to have to do that you're going to have to make these hard decisions whether or not you're going to serve christ or you're going to basically give in to what they want you to say and say it and he says this to the disciples because they're going to live this out in our day and age this may not be necessarily how it looks but in our own lives we're going to have to live this out it's going to be similar not in always the same but similar and here he's talking about this abandonment of fear. He he goes on to talk about this idea of what I say to you in the dark, you're going to tell in the light. What you hear whispered, you're going to proclaim from the housetops. This idea of the housetops is proclaiming it so everyone can hear it above crowds, above the den of noise, whatever's happening, you can hear this voice. And here the disciples are going to have to set apart this idea of what it looks like. It's going to look weird. Okay, there's no illusion here that they're going to be these really popular people. That's just going out the window. Jesus is basically telling these guys, you're going to be unpopular. People are not going to care for this. They're not going to like this. So if you want to be liked by people, if you want to be just everybody's buddy, this probably isn't going to be it. Now, as we go through this, as we see some of this, this is a fear of what people think, what they may say about us. That's a deep fear. A lot of us have. We don't want people talking bad about us, and we certainly don't want people to think the wrong things. But sometimes we're so concerned with that that we let the truth slip because it's more important that we look better. We don't want people to think we look bad. I think about this, and I, I think all of my years through high school and junior high, I was really captivated with what people thought of me even though from my senior picture you can't really tell it because i got these really like shaggy hair, and it was really everywhere. I was telling Eva earlier. It was everywhere. It was garbage. Um, my dad was right. I should have cut it. called me a hippie for a long time. Um, but I was really just captured with this idea that people need to like me. It's a big deal that they like me. And here, in the midst of this, he says, it, you can't have any fear of them. That's not the way this is going to be. And he talks about this idea of the truth is going to unravel all this stuff. All the stuff that is said, all the the truth that is in the world is going to be uncovered. It's going to be basically thrown out into the open. We're going to see it all for what it is. The way people look at you, the way people are, the way we act when no one's looking. Those things are all going to become known. And part of that is the way we treat and the way we operate in and through Jesus Christ. It's going to become known. Here in the midst... And that's a fear of what will happen to our life. He even says, don't fear the man that can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This idea that there's bigger fish to fry than what we think. Now, the ironic part of that is, that is not the way we think. If you stack up people's fears, and ironically, the fear of death isn't even usually in the top four. Usually the first one is fear of public speaking. Can you imagine? You'd rather be marched to your own death than you would talk in front of a large audience. I can't imagine. What happens if they make you talk in front of a large audience before they kill you? That's got to be unbearable. But this is where we're at. We've got a fear of weird things. And Jesus is trying to come into this and trying to say that we've actually got to overcome this. We've actually got to take our minds where they're logically not wanting to go, which is, this is short term. This is short term. The worst they can possibly do is what Jesus is saying is kill you. That's the worst they could possibly do. And even then, that's nothing to God. It's nothing to him. He can fix that. But the worst part is if you think that living for these people temporarily is going to be better, then looking forward to eternity, it's not going to be that way. You're not going to be able to serve these two masters. Either you're going to serve Jesus and you're going to live this life now and this is going to mean some unpopularity now or you're going to be popular now and you're not going to want to be there for the rest of that. The end part, the eternal part, is a lot longer than this temporary part. This isn't a basis of fear in the sense that this is what God wants to do to you. He wants to throw you into hell. This is an idea of, we talked about it last week, throwing down your arms. You're, You're still declaring war on God. And if we're going to do that, this is what happens in war. We don't want to be here for that. But this also, we talk about this in Sunday school a lot this idea of extremes. It's really easy to be extreme. You can be an extreme person and you can think that, okay. So basically what I'm hearing Jesus say is if I am really loud about how much I love Jesus and I tell people all the time how doomed they are to hell, he's going to like that. That's an extreme of what we can do. And there's nothing wrong with telling people the truth, especially when we're doing it in love. But I worry that a lot of times we're doing it because we think that's the way we're going to win the argument. We're worried about not so much the people actually going to hell as we are to make sure they know they are. Here in the midst of this, Jesus is opening up this way where we need to tell the truth in love, but this doesn't mean extremes. It's easy to be an extreme. We talk about it. We've seen it in church history. The monks thought that if they lived outside of the city, if they just would start their own Christian communities, they'd be better Christians. They could live better lives if they were just all together. And sometimes we kind of see this with the Amish. They live a better life. We think they're more pure because they do it. But the bad part is, usually the sin follows you, but then you have no impact on the people around you. How are you supposed to go out and witness to the world if you're at home in your nice community of people who think the same things as you and who believe the same things as you? Where have you won anyone to Christ that way? And the other extreme is you sacrifice everything. You don't even believe the gospel anymore. You just think that God loves everybody and that there's no reason for anybody to ever believe that Jesus is Lord. And you just submit to the culture and you have no backbone. Whatever the winds are blowing, that's where you're at. The extremes of both of those is easy to do. It's easy to be an extreme person. It's a lot harder to live in the middle. To believe that we have to sacrifice the fear of what others think. To sacrifice the idea that our life may be forfeit. We may die. But in the midst of that, that we've got a responsibility to love and to serve people in truth. Here. This is part of the truth and the cost of it. The second one is the acknowledgement of Christ in all things. He talks about this starting at verse 29, "...are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father, and even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven." Here, there's a positive case for acknowledging Him. When we acknowledge Him in all our life, we have the assurance that He's going to acknowledge us. When we deny Him, there's this assurance that He's going to deny us. It's kind of not a fairness idea, but it's the idea of who and where we're at right now, who we serve. He can't tell God, He can't tell the Father that you're serving Him when you're not. Here we come to this weird part where basically... This is getting at the whole of our lives. How you live your life matters. Where you put your heart matters. The daily life stuff that you do is all meant to help us draw closer to God. And he's not just talking about acknowledge. It's not like a Facebook thing. You've seen those all over Facebook and everything else. Type amen if you believe Jesus is Lord. I'm going to dispel something for you. Brace yourselves. God does not check his Facebook account Daily to make sure that you're saying amen to those. That may be uncomfortable for us. But he doesn't. Those kind of statements don't necessarily mean that's where your heart is. It's easy to say Jesus is Lord, and it's a lot harder to love people and to care for them every day. Those are two separate things. Here in the midst of this, he's talking about going all in. This is the only way we can live. You've got to do this. You've got to be fully in this. Because it's not going to work otherwise. The truth of this is that it's a very bad condition. Sin's horrible. But the only cure is the fullness of Jesus Christ. And you can't take it in doses. You've got to take it all at once. And it's for the rest of your life. There's this idea of fullness here. Now when I was 18, uh, I tore my ACL playing soccer. Uh, we were having an optional practice, which I really didn't even have to be at, and somebody slide tackled me from behind, and it tore my ACL clean, clean off. It was gone. I had to go to a doctor in Iowa City, and he had to look at this. He, I got an uh, MRI or whatever, and I, they did all that stuff to it. And basically, he does. He looks at all this stuff, and he goes, "Yeah, it's completely gone. We're gonna have to like go in. We're gonna have to get you a new ACL, and we're gonna have to." Make sure it's in place, and you are going to have to do a lot of recovery stuff. But one of the things he said, and uh, the doctor at Iowa City did all the Iowa Hawkeyes ACLs and stuff, uh, Doctor Albright. One of the things he said is, "My time's really valuable, and so before I do a surgery like this, you've got to prove to me that you want this done, and so you've got to do physical therapy before I'll even do the operation." And he asked me, he goes, "Is that something you want to do? If not," You can live without an ACL. You don't need to get it repaired, but you'll never play sports again. And I thought, I don't know. I'm 18. Do I really not want to run the rest of my life? I Couldn't really get it through my head. I thought I might want to run one day. I might need to run for my life. So I thought, that's a good idea. I'll just do the work. And I went through all this stuff. And it was like six weeks of therapy before they do the operation. He sees me the week before they schedule the operation. And he says, okay, it it looks really good. He made me do some jumps and other stuff. And he goes, okay, it looks like you took this seriously. Okay. Now, whatever this was for you, however hard this was, you're going to multiply this by three by the time we get done. Because after I do the surgery, you're going to have to do way more than this to get back where you want to be. And I thought that was miserable. So it's going to be really miserable. He did this. And I woke up after the surgery with my leg moving, and I wasn't doing it. And I'm stuck to a machine that's moving my leg and keeping it working because after they put the ACL back in, you have to keep it moving for a certain amount of time to make sure the blood gets in and everything. That was exciting. For the next about, oh, that happened in May. I didn't actually get to play until uh, June of the next year. I had to wait a whole year of rehab to do that stuff. I worked and I worked and it, man, it just stunk so much. It stunk so much. I got sick of seeing these little trainer band, uh, bands that you have to do, like they're rubber bands that you have to like stretch with and stuff. I got sick of seeing those. I got sick of touching my toes. I got sick of doing these little jog things at the therapy sessions with a rope tied around me. I just, it just was exhausting. But it all came to fulfillment that next year, that fall, when I actually got to play soccer again, and I didn't have extreme pain. That was nice. But it was full in. If I hadn't done that, if I hadn't gone full in, what he said basically it happens is if you don't work with it, you just lose it. You won't have it anymore. And he's talked about guys that he'd, he'd done the, the surgery on and they'd committed to doing it and then they got sick of it about halfway through and they just stopped. And their ACL's all right, but they can't play sports, it's not strong enough. And you think about that—this idea that you could just sacrifice half, and it would still be all right—and it doesn't work that way. You have to be all in. Here, our way of life—all the pressures, of fears, death, society, fade as we submit to Christ as our Lord of our life. Because the proclamation is, Jesus is the Lord of our lives and our relationships. The second part, counting the cost, then the second cost is the cost of love. and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Not peace, but a sword. Here you see the first inklings that Jesus has this idea of not only what humanity is like, but he actually knows what it is. And one of the things we struggle with is the idolizing of family. The idolizing of people in general, usually. And here he confronts us with it. We're going to try to put things in front of Christ. We're going to try to do it. That's just who we are. Oftentimes that's going to mean people we really love and that we really intend to honor. But we're going to do what's dishonoring and put them in front of Christ. And he talks about this idea of a sword. Now what we jump to is this idea of violence. That Here Jesus is saying that when you proclaim his truth, there's going to be a lot of violence and Probably, most likely, you're going to be a lot of arguing and yelling, and you're going to have to be a part of that. You're going to have to be in the fray with that. But look at the way he words it. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. It's not actually talking about this idea that you are going to have to start this fight. But this serving Christ in its very intimate degrees is going to mean that people are going to have problems with you. They're going to come to you. They're going to be your foes. Now we need to reconcile this with the rest of what Jesus says. He says that you are not to have enemies. You are to love your enemies. You are to serve them. You are to honor them. You are to put forth this idea that they're people. So he's not talking here about this idea that you're going to have enemies and you need to make sure you put them in your place. He's talking about this idea, this necessity of serving Him is going to mean you're going to have people that don't like them. And sometimes these people, especially here in the midst of this, love for them doesn't mean love in the sense of how you serve them and how you honor them. It means what you do for them. And I'm sure we're familiar with some of this. We've had people that say they love us, but what they really mean is because we do stuff for them. We're available when they want us available. We make sure to drop everything we have and we serve them in the midst of that. But the minute you stop doing that or the minute you stop doing what they think you should be doing, then they just drop you like a bad habit. That's not love. That's kind of an idol. Because you see, the minute you lost your worthfulness, you got dropped. Here in the midst of this, Jesus says that's not the way you are to love people. In fact, later on he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He's actually talking about you're going to love them, but I'm going to have to be first if that love's going to work. Otherwise, it's very likely it's going to be idolatry. You're going to love them because they give you stuff. You're not really going to be able to love them because you're not actually serving them. You're serving yourself. Here in the midst of this, he says, this set against the idea that they have made us enemies because of where we stand with Christ cuz we're going to set Christ so far and so great above all this other stuff that people that need us to be their worshipers it's not going to be good for that we can't do that anymore we won't be able to worship them we won't be able to have this closeness in that way it'll be different it'll be better but it'll be different This is the priority of Christ in love. That you can't love well until Christ is loved first. And you see this in the weirdest spots. We had games when we were kids, and one of the games was uh, King of the Mountain. I don't know if you guys played that. Some people call it King of the Hill. It depended where you were. We played King of the Mountain. Every time it snowed, they'd put all these big snowdrifts up in our uh, school playground, and we would stormed this thing, and whoever could stay up there was the king of the mountain. And it was a very violent game. As you came up the mountain, it was completely, all things were in. You could kick people, you could punch people, you could throw them on the thing. It didn't matter. It was snow. You couldn't get hurt, right? And so we would do this. We'd play the whole recess. We'd play this game. I remember it very well in fifth and sixth grade, because we went to a really kind of off-the-wall school. We didn't really have a lot of equipment. That's what we did in the wintertime. And the whole point of the game is to be the king of the mountain. But the catch is, there can only be one. One king. There weren't kings, there wasn't some sort of congress of the mountain. It was king, one. So the whole point of the game was to be the one. Likewise, the whole point of this is that Christ is king. Christ is Lord. There can only be one. The other game we used to play was musical chairs. You guys remember that? We were the first class to get that game taken away from us because we were violent with it too. I can't imagine why. And one of the games I remember, it came down to two people. Two guys that were pretty big guys and one chair. They circled this chair like lions circling a lamb and when the guy went, the music stopped, he went to plant himself in that chair. The other guy knew he couldn't get there. He kicked the chair out from the guy and he hit the ground and they both fought over the chair. That was the last time we ever played that game. But once again, there's one chair at the end and only one person can get the chair. Here in the midst of this, Christ is saying there's only one chair in your life. Whoever sits on that chair is your Lord. That's who you'll serve. That's who you'll live for. The only person that can sit in that chair well and make sure that all the other people and all the other things are taken care of correctly is Christ. If you put anything else up there, it will all fall down. It won't go well. If Christ is Lord over our lives and our relationships, then that means even this, our service and love of Christ, will reorganize everything into submission to Him. At the end of all this, what you see or what you should read into this is, Christ is saying, there is no place in this world for lies anymore. The new kingdom, the new way this is going to work is Christ is going to be overall in all your life. There's no time for lies. There's no time for falseness. There's no time for idolatry. It just won't work. So in the midst of all this, Christ is saying, I'm going to be Lord of your lives and your relationships and how you deal with the world is going to change because of that. No more fear of things that can't really even affect you. Your life, what people think about you, that's got to be tossed away. All the other thoughts about who you acknowledge, what you acknowledge, it's got to just be me. And love's got to be reorganized, all your relationships, even at the very basic level. And here when Jesus is saying this, a woman goes and lives with her husband's family. So Jesus is literally saying in this context of not peace but a sword, even the people closest to you fall under this rule. And if it means it for them, then it means it for everybody else outside of that. That's what he's getting after. He's reorganizing even that. If you would, please pray with me before we do our invitation hymn. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we submit all things to you, as Lord, help us. Help us to do better. Help us serve and honor you better. And Lord Jesus, that we can be a people who are all in. Counting the cost and counting it well. This is something we need and we desire to do. To be a people that are not worthy of you. But a people who truly say when we love you that we mean it. With the way we act, the way we are. We thank you, we praise you. Jesus Christ, holy name we pray. Amen.